Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, Jacob's Biscuits. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and this is the third in a series of seven old Dublin family businesses. Jacob's Biscuits was founded in 1951 in Bridge Street in Waterford. It later moved up to Bishop Street in Dublin and traded under the name of W&R Jacob. In the 1970s, the company merged with Boland's Biscuits to form Irish Biscuits Limited and moved its factory from Bishop Street to Talla in the outskirts of Dublin. The story of Jacob's Biscuits is told here by Michael Jenkins, who you will hear later in this podcast. I'll try and rebuild it, yes, because of rationing and short supplies. You see, to make cream crackers, you need strong wheat. And strong wheat, it's not grown in Ireland. Yeah. It's, it's a Manitoba wheat, which is the um, best wheat you can get is from Canada, really. But we start with Jonathan Bewley, who tells us here about the original founders of Jacob's Biscuits. Who started Jacob's? William and Robert Jacob in 1850s started it in Waterford. A uh, huge Quaker uh, uh, settlement in Waterford, yeah. the Jacobs and uh, a lot of them. And uh, they made ship's biscuits. Most of the biscuit factories in the world were started uh, adjacent to ports because with their, their real business was making ship's biscuits. And the word biscuit means uh, twice-baked, biscuit. And it, uh, they would preserve and keep and so could be kept on the on a boat for donkey's years. Mm. Uh, with nothing worse than weevils, I suspect. But uh, uh, anyhow, then he was, he, they branched out, they realised there was a market among their locals to buy more attractive biscuits than ones which were like bored with very low moisture contents. And so they made what they called fancy biscuits. And he was travelling back from England, having gone to buy a machine, and he passed through Dublin and spotted a premises available in Bishop Street, and he bought it. And then they moved the factory to Bishop Street and gradually extended the factory that they owned the whole block uh, over the next succeeding 50 years, making what they call fancy biscuits. That's biscuits with a fat content rather than just water and flour. And uh, all biscuit manufacturers, Huntley and Palmer's, Crawford's, uh, cars, all of them, started and ports and followed that particular history 
Can you tell me the, uh, the, the the connection between the Jacob and the Bewley? Was that... Uh... I can. I'm only working from my memory. But uh, the Bewleys were not in the biscuit business at all. They were actually in... There were two separate Bewley businesses in the tea and coffee business. One of them is the Bewleys, which you know of in Grafton. The other was my... I forget how many greats grandfather. And... Uh, he had a son, and the son didn't seem to know what he wanted to do for a living, and he didn't seem to want to go into this, and that, into the uh, tea business. And uh, the Jacob brothers, William and Robert, ran into financial difficulties in the 1860s, I think, and they needed some money, and the people to approach were other fellow Quakers, and they approached uh, the Bewley who ran the coffee shop and said, would they be interested, would he be interested in lending them some money? And he lent them £2,000 on the understanding they took his son into the business, which they did. And uh, now, I'm sure that's, I hope that's verifiable. Mm. I know what is verifiable, that there is a minute in the minute book paid back, I think it was Thomas Bewley, uh, £2,000 today, thank God, in about 1880. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, what uh, ancestor was that of yours? I know, I'm a little vague here. I have a family tree which you can borrow <laughs> and look at if you want to. I'm not a great historian. Uh, my grandfather was Thomas Bewley and his father was William Frederick Bewley, but I think it goes back a generation further than that. I see. So, uh, but the Bewleys were... were uh, they were connected in it, to the... To the biscuit business. From very early on, yeah. And they were always on the commercial side rather than the production and practical side. I see. Uh, I was the first one who was on the practical side. Okay. Uh, but tell me first about your father. Uh, what, what, your father's name? Edward. Edward Clibborn Bewley. And so he's... Born in part. 1902. Okay. And uh, died in 1979. And he... Uh, he was a chartered accountant... Uh, and he went into Bewley's and he was the first accountant in, into Jacobs rather he was the first accountant employed in Jacobs and uh, he was a very modest person so we never talked about what he did or what he didn't do but I suspect he was the person who brought Jacobs from being a private company to being a public company they floated on the stock exchange in 1948 two separate companies the in, in I'll go back a little bit uh, in 1922 when the Free State was founded uh, exports were prohibited and he, he at that stage 50% of the output of Jacobs went exports I have fo photographs we have photographs in Jacobs of huge big cases being nailed together with Singapore and Kuala Lumpur and various exotic names on it where the biscuits went from Bishop Street to these places that all stopped the factory found itself in considerable difficulties then so they had bought land in Aintree in the beginning of the First War, in middle of the First War perhaps, and, uh, oh, a considerable plot of land, 40 acres or so, mm -hmm. and the idea was that sometime they would build on that to handle the English trade. Well, it so happened in 1922 when they couldn't uh, export anymore, they got together and they built a factory there which handled England and exports, unfortunately. So the, the non-exporting policy of the state at the time must have destroyed a fair proportion of the business in Ireland and other businesses too, I suspect. And the upshot of it was then that the Irish company from then only dealt with the Irish market and the English company dealt with the rest. 
Now, by the Irish, I mean Total Island. So, uh, in 1948, by this stage, the English company, having a huge market of, of contents of England and the rest of the world, had developed to be much bigger than its parent in Dublin. And... Uh, they floated two separate companies in 1948, one in Dublin on the Dublin Stock Exchange and one in England on the English Stock Exchange. The premises on Bishop Street, yeah. uh, that uh, implied uh, up to three? Three four? and a half thousand at one stage. And the, 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 the uh, Quaker ethos, was that very prominent in the factory? Oh yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, they had a company doctor, company dentist, they had things that currently fashionable sneer at, like sewing classes, woodwork classes, general education. There was a schoolmaster employed to teach people, because half of them couldn't read or write. And yes, it, it was, of course. And they had a huge, that big uh, recreation area, a football field, uh, things which were not normal in normally supplied by employers, were supplied by them. Very similar to Quakers. They owned houses, which were let as tenements for people who worked for them. Um, not to the same extent as Quaker or Bourneville. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a magnificent village. And uh, yes, very much so. So the well-being of the employee was as important as, uh, as, as Absolutely. anything? Yes, I suspect it wasn't a hundred percent altruism that if somebody is properly fed and a bit of education they're a better employee than if they're starving and no education so it, it might but the, the the i think the incentive for doing it was not selfish the incentive for doing it was for the betterment of the employees and uh, you know all the the directors of the company or who all owned a slice of it they didn't sell their shares and go and live in the West Indies or buy yachts and go and sail off around the world or something. They just continued going to work five days a week. Yeah. My father, my grandfather, uh, he was wealthy enough and he lived in Sanford Hill in the, what's now Gonzaga and he had a car but he went to work on his bike. He was only just down the road on his bike and he went to work on his bike. Did you know him? He died. No, he died before I was born. Oh, all my only I only had one grandmother. My maternal grandmother was alive when I was born. My, all my other grandchildren, my grandparents, were dead. Yeah, and so uh, apart from your father uh, being involved mm. with uh, with Jacobs Biscuits, did he have other interests outside of Jacobs? Well, I mean, not really. In, in other in other businesses. businesses. Ah, yes, yes, he did. He was a director of. Uh, the Royal Bank, which then became AIB, director of AIB. I don't think you think much of the current behaviour of the directors of AIB, but uh, he was a director of that, and uh, he was on various voluntary boards. He did a lot of voluntary work on the Adelaide Hospital as chairman of that, he was on the Rotunda Hospital as chairman of that. He was on Bloomfield, you know, the mental hospital. It wasn't Donnybrook, no, up in Scholarstown Road. Um, he was in many things, but he didn't talk about them much. And as a child, you know, he just came home late one evening, and you didn't really inquire too much where he was. He was on one of these committees or other. So he, he did a lot more than we realised at the time, than I realised at the time. And your mother's maiden name? Boyd. And where did she come she from? She lived in Black Rock. She lived about half a mile from here, around the corner. And, and was she also part of the uh, Quaker tradition? She wasn't. Funnily enough, she was a Plymouth Brethren, which in those days was quite strong. I think it's more or less faded out now. And I'm not certain of the... Um, uh, disciplines that they follow or the, the, yeah. anything at all but uh, although we were all Quakers um, my two sisters and myself we actually attended Church of Ireland Church all the time and I, I never followed this up but 
I think probably, I'm guessing that my father said he was not going to go to a Plymouth Brethren service and she said well you know, if I'm not you're not coming to my sir I'm not going to a Quaker once they went to Church of Ireland as a compromise I suspect I don't know yeah. but no they were we were even though we were normally Quakers although interestingly enough uh, my sisters were both registered as a Quaker and I thought I was and I went to a Quaker school and I like to think I think like a Quaker but when my father died I, I found a booklet which lists all the names of the Quakers in yes. Ireland and in this book after my name is an asterisk and I looked to see what that meant, and that's it, residing in a house of a friend. So, oh, that's funny. So I made a few inquiries, and I find they never registered me as a Quaker at all. And they never did anything formal about my religion at all. And so, in effect, I was never baptized as anything else, and I was never registered as a Quaker. We go to Church of Ireland, and we always did as children, and we still, Jones Church of Ireland, and we still do go to Church of Ireland. I like to think I think like a Quaker, but actually, in fact, I never was written down as anything at all. But, uh, unfortunately, I didn't find all this out until after my mother died. Mm. And so I never... Was it an oversight? Was it the war? What was it? it I don't know. Yes, indeed. It, it's extraordinary, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And did your father practice... Uh, uh, was he, You say that he was quite a wealthy man. He could have retired if he wanted to. Oh, yes. Uh, he worked, but did, did he, he keep working? He, well, he retired nominally. He, he was chairman, and then he continued as chairman right after long after his uh, 65th birthday but he handed all his executive uh, role over to other people but he liked to come in and he would be in he was at work three days before he died he died of a heart attack very suddenly and he was at work three days before he died and he would just walk around and talk to people and people would talk to him he enjoyed at that stage we were in Taller of course and he enjoyed meeting the people whom we'd been with for the last 50 years and talking to them and so forth yeah, yeah well, he would never have stopped and gone away no that would be considered very unfashionable and not allowed to be done but yeah. it worked in those days <laughs> <laughs> going in with Bolands yeah. what did that mean? Bolands uh, built a biscuit factory uh, in the 50s I think yeah. out in Dean's Grange it was quite small but they brought over a fellow from England or Scotland actually Jim Wilson to build it up put the plant in and run it which he did but they made three very small lines yeah. they were only quite small but it was a good clean factory and they sold to Marks and Spencers they, who had the most stringent hygiene standards of any of the UK uh, customers and uh, they never really made huge headway in the Irish market. They had about 20% of the market eventually, most of which was in dry biscuits like cream cracker and things like that. And they made a very good cream cracker. And many people will tell you it was better than the Jacob one. It was certainly softer and a higher fat content, it was, but it was more expensive to produce because it had a higher fat content and also it had to be baked slower. So it was a more expensive biscuit to produce. But I would agree, I think it probably was a better biscuit. But... They found it difficult to uh, make commercial success of it. And also, they, they were a flower supplier to us, and their flower was never as good as the Odlum flower, another Quaker company. And uh, we had constant trouble with quality with Bolands. We never had a quality problem with Odlums. And I think when they built the biscuit factory, they thought it was a useful outlet to the flower, and they thought, too, that it was uh, a good extension to get into being in the baking trade. And uh, But they couldn't make a financial go of it. And they approached us and said, we'd be interested in taking 
the factory and the biscuit business, which we did. And that's when we had to form Irish Biscuits because Jacobs became the holding company and Irish Biscuits became the manufacturing company using the Jacob and the Boland label. And from our point of view, it gave us a label which we could manufacture under and sell in the UK because we were prohibited from using the Jacob label in the UK. So we sold quite a lot of our lines in in the Boland wrapper in the UK. So it had some sense and we took it over and that was... Uh, useful. What year did you come into the business? Uh, 1961. I'm not very good at that. Or two. Something like that. Early 60s, anyway. Uh, was it inevitable? Was it? Uh, what... I don't think so. Uh, it was not inevitable, but... Um, I think I think my father would have been disappointed if I hadn't. Although he many times said, I want you, uh, you know, to be under no uh, pressure to come in here. If you want to go and paint landscapes in the west of Ireland you do what you want to do or something but I was never put under any pressure to join and um, I've always been mechanically minded Mm -hmm. and uh, I did mechanical engineering but I I did it uh, down the practical route I never I I knew one or two of my friends were went to Trinity and UCD and I didn't think much of the courses they were not mechanically orientated at all and uh, uh, so I uh, went to England and I joined an engineering company as an apprentice I and I worked there and then you got day release after a couple of years you'd work five, four evenings a week on a Saturday morning at Tech and then on, on uh, my second or third year you could got day release and you could go on I went on and I got my high national that way and my AMI McKee and uh, so when I left that company I was able to I didn't have any training to do I'd done it <laughs> and I, I went then I I, I, they, there was a period of great development in uh, Bishop Street at that time and my father said you know that we're actually taking on two engineers at the moment would, would you think of doing that and so I said well I would well he said actually we won't be taking them on for a year or so I, I think you ought to go to the Liverpool factory and work there for a year and learn a bit about biscuit making so that was a great help to me I went and worked in Liverpool then so when I hesitated about when did you join Jacobs, I didn't join Jacobs Dublin till about in the uh, mid sixties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, by that stage, I'd done all my apprenticeship and got qualified and worked in the biscuit factory in England. And so when I came over here, I was able to slot straight in. And ha- as it happened, they employed another engineer the same day. We both started the same day, and he'd come straight from Trinity. And he spent most of the time asking me, "How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do the other?" So I think my decision was possibly correct. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so your apprenticeship then would have given you new ideas, and did you apply those new oh, ideas? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So what did you do? Well, my job, I was on the drawing board to start with, obviously, and I worked, um, and I put in, one of the first jobs was bulk chocolate, and put in that. And then the cooling systems in Jacobs were all run with uh, ammonia cooling brine and circulating brine around a system. This was way out of date now, mm-hmm. a centralised uh, cooling plant. So I took all that out and put in individual Freon units on every cooling uh, unit. And I put in chocolate moulding plants, chocolate enrobing plants, baking plants. I, I Really, anything which was mechanical, I did it. I didn't do anything on the uh, civil or the uh, electrical. And uh, I, wrapping machines were coming to the fore. Because up to the, the 50s, most packets of biscuits were wrapped by hand. And not only in Dublin, but everywhere. Yeah. And wrapping machines were coming out, and there was a plethora of manufacturers, manufacturing machines, some a great deal better than others. And uh, 
I made it my business. I'd go and see them all and go over the drawings and go over the machines, what ones were good, what ones weren't. And culminated then, the uh, chief engineer retired, and I was made chief engineer, and then I was made an engineering director of Irish Biscuits, which was a subsidiary of Jacobs, the manufacturing subsidiary. And uh, that carried on, and I was that. And then we decided to move to Tallop. So the building was put under the auspices of the managing director, Geoffrey Jenkins, and he was responsible for getting the building done, and I was responsible for uh, putting all the machinery into it and commissioning it. What, it what was the reason to, uh, to move out to Tallow? Cost. In what way? The cost of manufacturing on a multi-storey building in the middle of Dublin was prohibitive. We were getting uh, absolutely stuck on cost. We were get, the English manufacturers all had... Biscuit, a biscuit line uh, to produce uh, biscuits is probably 500 feet long. Mm-hmm. Now, we would, the oven would terminate after 200 feet and then it would go up system of conveyors to the next floor and then something could happen another system would come. and there was people employed everywhere we had a, at one stage 22 lifts I think it was yeah. Yeah, and each lift had an operator and so, there, just, there were too many people so the new systems you were putting in place we were putting the, the new system and you see, all the bulk ingredients we we had no bulk handling systems in Bishop Street except for fat uh, all the sugar and the flour and everything was in bags. Well, that involves people mulliking hundredweight bags around the place. So once we moved to Tallow, we put in silos. We were buying 20 tonnes of flour in a tanker, blowing it in, blowing it across, weighing it. And I mean, there was a huge amount. The savings were just immense. Mm. Like? Employees-wise? Well, like 1,000 to 1,200 people. But we had a huge workforce. That sounds a lot for a lot of people. But in actual fact, we had very little voluntary redundancy. Mm. We had quite a lot of, uh, no compulsory redundancy, very little voluntary redundancy, because a lot of the people had worked there since uh, the end of the, the 20s. Mm. And so they were all coming up to the age of retiring. So they just didn't move to Talib. It was as simple as that. Uh, it, it was just tough luck that when we moved uh, in the early 70s, inflation and went to the early 20s and interest rates went to the 20s as well something which the modern generation doesn't believe uh, but it did and we were caught with a factory in Bishop Street a factory in Dean's Grange and a half finished factory in Tallow an interest rate to 20% so it was a very difficult time we had to borrow four million pounds from the banks which caused the banks no end of heartache and uh, we got it anyway and uh, we moved to Tala and we never seemed to manage to get make any headway in chipping down this four million pounds. Uh, in fact, it grew and grew, and uh, finally the bank manager sent for the then managing director or the finance director, Leo O'Donnell, who was a great person, and he, in my view, was the salvation of Jacobs to bring it into the next century. And he looked at what we were doing, and we just bit the bullet, and we had to let go a lot of people. But we, we cut out everything which wasn't making money. And the banks at one stage said to us they didn't believe we'd ever pay back the capital. And uh, at the moment, they doubted whether we'd be capable of paying back the interest, let alone the capital. So anyhow, uh, Leo, marvellous man, still alive, lived up in Fox Rock, marvellous person. He cut out all the dead wood. He cut out the uh, lines which were traditional and not profitable. Uh, 
It meant having to cut out, at this stage we had a certain amount of export business which we had rebuilt up under the Bolin brand. It didn't earn a halfpenny. It was strategic rather than anything. Oh, I know what it was. But we cut that. We cut a lot of that out. And oh, a lot of soul searching. You know, we've been doing this for 100 years. We should continue to cut it all out. Put the company back in a profitable footing. And uh, we finished the teller factory. And then got rid of Bishop Street. Got rid of Dean's Grange. And then we were on one site. Got the numbers down properly. And it, n- nobody wanted to move from Dean's Grange, which was a great help. Mm-hmm. because um, they all wanted to leave and um, Dean's Grange factory drew its labour pool from Dunleary and at that stage Dunleary Tallow was a three quarters of an hour drive and if you're on the bus it was into Dublin out again with a two hour drive <laughs> so nobody wanted to uh, move from there practically about five I think moved but no, no more so we were able to and we had a modern factory there uh, which was capable of supplying the UK market and we did private label work for Marks and Spencer's, Sainsbury's, uh, all the big suppliers in England. Not hugely profitable, but it did take up uh, and contrib- contribute to the overheads. Uh, the Irish market was the profitable end, but then you know, there was only three and a half million people in Southern Ireland and a million in the north or something. It's a small market for a big factory. And really, in the biscuit industry, you need to run fa- plants uh, 15 shifts of tw- uh, or yeah 15 shifts a, uh, a week to make it pay and we were only running uh, 10 and sometimes one or two plants beyond nights and things like that yeah. so we were always struggling but at that stage the labor rates were lower in Ireland than in England and the return on capital our return on capital was always up around four and a half percent the United biscuits which is was the biggest and best biscuit fact biscuit company in england theirs was around four and a half percent but they made a lot more money with this because they had a lot more capital in the business we kept the capital down and got the same return and uh, that was always our target we could never match them on profit per turnover but we could at least match them on uh, capital return on capital and uh, just went on from there and leo o'donnell was great and then eventually uh we realized we couldn't go on forever on our own the, the the world was getting smaller and we were getting very much smaller and also when i went into jacobs first there was uh, no customer bigger than us you know the duns the quinsworths they were all smaller we had a plethora of i forget we had thousands and literally thousands of small customers we had a, a sales force of about 60 we a transport fleet of of 120 people and about 80 vans you know huge costs but the way we were working and as we as the as the marketing world changed and bigger customers duns grew musgraves grew quinsworth grew uh tesco of course came in on it was more and more obvious that we couldn't carry on in a single uh on our own and uh, but it was more and more obvious also to Jacobs and Liverpool, as I said earlier, was a different company. So they said, look, we've got this crowd in Dublin operating under the same name. If somebody took them over, they could operate under that name and they could yeah. harm us very greatly. So they bought quietly shares on the open market until they owned up to 29%, uh, which was as high as they could go without making a bid for the rest of the capital. And, uh, But it had a huge problem for us. Nobody was going to come in and buy us. Yes. Uh, when 29% was held by another company. So they were effectively keeping the share price down 
and uh, doing nothing with it and it, it was an awkward situation for us but we just did a bite our lip it was real life and get on with what was happening and then uh, Nabisco the American company Nabisco had a branch in Europe Nabisco UK uh, Nabisco Europe and they took over the Associated Biscuits business which um, which at this stage Jacobs was part of that's Jacobs Hunt and Palmer and Peakfreen they took that over and rolled it into Nabisco Mm. UK so that continued for a bit and still Nabisco UK now held 29% of our equity and they didn't show any signs of wanting to take it over or not wanting to take it over until they woke up one morning and found that BSN as they call themselves Danone they now call themselves the French company bought Nabisco Europe yeah. so suddenly by sheer accident Nabisco UK found themselves a subsidiary of a French company and we found ourselves a subsidiary of a French company too. So it seemed logical at the time that, well, we, we because they had a 29%, we had two directors of Danone or BSN as they were then known uh, on our board. And it seemed sensible. It was only small money to them that in time they should take that, the remaining 81% which we negotiate the price, and they did. And they bought it out at £5 a share, and our share price had been 170 or so. I can't remember what it was yeah. exactly, but it was a hell of a lot less than £5. But we managed to get that price. So in the end of the day, the shareholders that stuck with us through thick and thin, and there were a few thin times, particularly in the early 70s, uh, the shareholders that stuck with us, they got a fiver share for their shares. So they probably did as good as they'd have done anyway. Yeah. So we felt happy we'd done the right thing. Well, that's where we leave Jonathan Bewley. And now the interview with Michael Jenkins starts with Michael telling us about his background. Well, my grandmother was a Jacob. Her father ran Jacobs for many years. Is that right? That's right. George and Jacob. G.N.J. as he's known as. Yes. And he, um, his, his, his father was William Beale Jacob, who moved the factory up to Bishop Street. Yes. In 1850. He was the brother of Robert Jacob, which means that's why it's called W and R Jacob. Oh, I see. Sons. Yes, and then um, just coming down along the line, uh, your what was your own father's name? Jenkins, Jeffrey Bryan, and he Jenkins. he married a it, Fitzgibbon. A Fitzgibbon. His mother married a Jenkins, Dora Jacob, the daughter of George N. Jacob. I see. So, how many generations? So many generations of your people. Well, there's, there's me, and there's my father. His his mother, which was my grandmother, she was Jacob. Her father was George N. Jacob, and his father was William Beale Jacob. My, yes, that's it. But, but you would have been the next in line. Well, probably. Well, yes, pro- yes. In terms of family, yes. So take me through those stages. You you started on the floor. What were you doing when you when you started first? We were doing a, learning a bit, learning how to work everything. Just going from one area yeah, to another, right. cutting, mixing, ovens, packing the lot, chocolate making, everything. Two years it was, and I did then six months in Liverpool, or four months or something in Liverpool. See how they did it, the Liverpool factory. Yeah. So it was just hands-on training, really. They'd show you how to do it. 
and you brought back the yeah, ideas. that's right. They also, well, I think later on they sent me on a few cost accountancy courses and IMIs courses and things. Yeah. I did a work-study course, I think, as well, in Rath Mines. They were all into work-study in those days. It was quite a, it was the in thing, I think, to, to, to tighten up management and tighten up efficiency. It, it was inevitable that you would be taking over your father's Well, position. not inevitable. What I wanted to do was leave Trinity. I had a job offer in England, and I wanted to go somewhere else and cut my teeth outside of the firm. And then my plan was to come back, but it didn't work out that way. So I joined the firm and stayed there for 10 years and then was headhunted to sell packaging for a supplier in 1973. Okay, but take me through the stages then. Uh, you, your schooling was in England. First it was high school in Dublin, then it was Aravon in Bray, and then I went to Sherbourne in England, and then I came back to um, Sherbourne School, they like to call it. Sherbourne School in England, and then I came back to Trinity. Uh, what were you studying in Trinity? Psychology, in the end. If I was going into business, I wanted to do business somewhere else before I joined the family firm. Yes. Because no profit is acceptable in his own country, as they say. It's, it's, it's a company that was um, thriving in those years. It was well, it was before the war, yes. Why was it going... Uh, for, for what reason? Why was it doing so well? Well, it was the part of the life cycle of, of any product. It was on the up. Biscuits were on the up. Sweet biscuits. Um, in the 30s, I think. Mm -hmm. But all products have a life cycle. And they peak at some stage, and this was uh, certainly um, when George and Jacob was in charge of the place, and um, it was on the rise. And there wasn't an awful lot of competition. There was some competition, but not an awful lot. And there was a thriving export market as well that the company had through the Jacob de uh, through the Liverpool depot. But that all went when um, De Valera um, put the restrictions after the war on supplying the home market first. And I remember my father being very, very negative feelings about that because it lost an awful lot of business for the company. It was a very short-sighted economic policy. And the company suffered yes. because of that? Yes. Coming from the Quaker tradition, uh, it, it would have the... A very strong um, ethos of looking after people, I think. Very positive on that side. Mm. Now... Uh, your grandmother was was uh, a Quaker, but your father... She became Christian yeah. scientist. Yes. Which I think was a little bit of a strange move, but anyway, I don't know an awful lot about it. She lived in London most of her life. Did you know her? Yes. What kind of a woman was she? Very strong lady. She'd hold up the traffic in Knightsbridge, just roar straight across the road. <laughs> Uh, the next generation, your father's generation, uh, did he continue with the same tradition or did he... Uh yeah, he went into the factory uh, in the 30s after he qualified from... after he got his uh, degree from Oxford in classics. Mm. Uh, I think he was quite attached to his, his grandfather, George N. Jacob, because he lived a lot of the time at St. Michael's. Yes. Because his mother, during the First World War, came back to Ireland and lived there for a while. 
in St. Michael's, which is now at the school at Aylesbury Road, which, which was George and Jacob's house. Uh, were you brought up there? No, no, I remember going there at Christmas to give the gardener his bottle of whiskey before they sold it. That was the early 40s. <laughs> I see, I see. And then, uh, after the war years, uh, straight back into the straight business? Back, try and rebuild it, yes, because of rationing and short supplies. You see, to make cream crackers, you need strong wheat, and strong wheat is not grown in Ireland. Yeah. It's a Manitoba wheat, which is... Um, Best wheat you can get is from Canada, really, mm-hmm. because you need a strong um, gluten content. And the supplies coming from Canada they were very scarce during the war. Was it sometime in the late fifties then that you joined? I joined in sixty-three, nineteen sixty-three, when I qualified from Trinity. I was twenty-three years old, and. Having your father the head of the company, were you? did you feel any uh, special, uh, or did you get any special treatment? I hope not. I didn't want any special treatment. But I worked from the floor up. Did all the jobs. Yeah. Floor loft the lot. And I got on well. I always got on well with the workers anyway. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, that but, was never but a did, problem to me. But did they see you as the boss's son? Well, some of them did, yeah, I think so. Yeah. But I tried to get them, put that behind me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first day they all, I was sort of introduced and there was a, some party or other, a duel, Christmas time, I think it was. And I was introduced, as, you know, and everybody clapped. I was, I was so embarrassed it wasn't true. It was quite unnecessary, in my view, anyway. You'd have to look up the date yeah. in the book. Yes. I can't remember, but that was that. I had a roving commission then to look after Boland's affairs in terms of packaging and research and development, and um, Bishop Street. Mm-hmm. So I was got um, a responsibility in both areas. And so you were also uh, designing the packaging. Well, for I wasn't. I was. I was coordinating it. Between the, I was secretary of the research and development committee. I think mm. um, it's a long time ago. Yeah, but it, it, it's interesting uh, to find out exactly how. Where were you sourcing uh, the actual materials, the paper itself? I mean, did that come from one of the? That came the from the supplier, whoever the printing or packaging supplier was. And who was the packaging Well, there was Smith's of Whitehaven, there was Robinson Wax Paper there were, of Bristol. Um, there was boxes from Bailey Gibson, I think. Smurfits were on the up, and they got the contract for the um, cases, the outer cases. When they made their own tins in the, on site tin and wash tin making washing department they sourced Christmas tins from Huntleybourne Stevens near Newton Le Willows I think between Liverpool and Manchester mm. they were the printed tins um, that's as far as I can remember anyway uh, so there, there wasn't except for Smurfits uh, that, that was the only Irish company that was Bailey Gibson as well. Or Bailey Gibson, yeah. yeah. And there was a Smurfit printing work, printing place as well, I think. 
It's a bit hazy in the dim, dim distant past. <laughs> At what stage did your father resign from the company? Was he there all through Europe? No, he, he, was, he was in charge of, um, of the building of the Tala factory. Mm. That was a special brief. He was, he was taken out of day-to-day management and heading up the whole team mm-hmm. that coordinated the design and the building and everything else of the Tala factory before he was chairman. And who were the architects that he worked with? No idea. And <laughs> was, was the idea to move to Tallinn in the first place? I don't, that was a board decision. I don't yeah. know who made that. And you weren't sitting on that board? No, no, no. I was never a director. For uh, To move? Oh, he was very to committed Tallinn. to that. Very, very committed to it. Well, it was his... his his baby, really. Yeah. And the team around him. I mean, it was a lot of the engineering department worked with, that he worked with, and he liked working on it. And they were looking into the future, and they were looking at uh, bigger well, see, and better. Yes, that's right. And we were trying to rebuild the export business as well, rebuild the American business especially. Because I think... When ABM and Irish Biscuits, they sort of split up a bit, so they were almost competing in a friendly, in, a, in an honourable way, I think, but they were effectively competitors, mm-hmm. or separate entities anyway. There were still common directors, but that's, that didn't last that long. The move then from uh, Bishop Street out to, to Tallow, was, did that run smoothly? And I, or, uh, what do you remember? I can't remember. I remember the open plan office. I didn't like the open plan office we worked in because it was too much noise. You could hear everything. I wasn't. But I, I suppose it was. A, it was. I mean, people couldn't lock themselves in their office, and nobody knows what they were doing if they were doing anything. In the old Bishop Street, you could have the door shut, and you wouldn't. Nobody know what you were at. Did you like Bishop Street? I like the, I like the shop floor people. Yes, very much. But did you like the whole structure and the building and the, and, and the the place itself? It was all right. I, no, no. I mean, did, did I didn't dislike it. It had character. Yes, I'm I think sure. So. Well, I remember seeing it when I was very young, so I was sort of I didn't expect anything different. Yeah. Growing up, it was known as the factory. Dad's at the factory when he came back from the war. But it's really one of the old, old-time yeah. uh, places. You know, old floorboards on the on the on the, on the, the ground, the lofty ceilings. Do you remember those? No, not really. Yeah. No. How, how would you describe it? Well, it was just a factory. It was a biscuit factory. Yeah. That's all. But on many levels. Yeah. But it had been there since the middle of the last the century That's right. before it was, that. It had a far as well, I think. Yeah. It was sort of... Um, I suppose it was a bit... The reason for moving, of course, was to get everything on, on, on a level. with plenty of space. Because really, um, it was a five-storey building, the factory. So it, was, it had its obviously logistical problems, mm-hmm. which I didn't really... It went up for granted more than anything else, I think. And that move was in the 1970s, and... 
Yeah, that's right. And what well, happened? I left in '73, and it had been open for a good three, I think two and a half, three years by the by then. What happened to Bishop Street? Well, it eventually closed. I think that was after I left. It was closed down and sold. I don't know how they. I don't know really. I was gone by then. Why did you leave? Because I was headhunted. I wanted to sell, and um, I got quite involved with one of the suppliers, and they offered me a job selling packaging, which I knew all about. Oh, was that too a, bi- a big disappointment to your father that you? Well, you I discussed were it. In? I discussed it with them before I le- left. He was the first person I spoke to about it when I got the offer, and he th- he considered I was doing the right thing. And you made the move. Yep. In hindsight, was it a good idea? Yep, I think so. You were doing what you liked? Yep. Selling. You have to have something to sell. Good products. And it was Irish-based factory. I'd be strong in selling Irish. I ended up selling in London for them. All over Britain. What was the name of the company? Superior Packaging, Fingers. Owned by Smiths of Whitehaven and then owned by Marden International, M A R D U N, another Bristol firm. Into printing and packaging again. I was selling uh, bacon wrap, bread wrap, uh, bags for plastic, polythene bags, printed polythene bags for hygiene products, Kimberly Clark. And the, the philosophy was that we, Superior, we would be a third supplier to a big English company. And we, they would already have two reliable suppliers. And, but they would have, because of all the troubles in, in the Heath years in um, England, we would get a small portion of the requirement of the customer. And it would be a big order in, our, in terms of Irish terms, but a small order in their terms, in the English consumer factory terms gave them backup if there was a strike in England and they were getting short supplies and it was a big sized order in terms of what the runs were on the Irish scale so it made sense and the company did it uh, did it grow and develop in your time superior yes it did I think yes. did, did you climb that ladder yourself yes did you become one of the managers well I had my own Area to manage, yes. And that was in, in the, UK. the UK. Yeah. We've come to the end of this week's podcast on the story of Jacob's Biscuits. You've been listening to Michael Jenkins and Jonathan Bewley. And if you would like to hear their full interviews, you can find them on our website. That's irishlifeandlore.com. Here's a sample of next week's podcast. They had to try and, and get, they found it extremely difficult to get a loan so for, for setting themselves up. And then they were offered, there were three or four um, of these little airports or, uh, for the training, oh, no. training spaces. And there was um, one in Tallard, Cookstown, there was Gormanstown and Baldonnell and Collinstown. So they were offered Gormanstown or Tala, and the Gormanstown they felt was a bit foggy, which would make chocolate sweat. So they decided that was how they picked on Tala.
The Story of Ernie Chocolates. I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and I look forward to bringing you that podcast next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.